Our passage this morning is John 18, 1, 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us to know you and to live our lives in obedience and, and to please and glorify you. Father, we pray for Tom that you will instruct him and that your Holy Spirit will be with him as he delivers the message. We pray, Father, that we will be obedient to your word and faithful to, to, to follow it and that we might come to know you better and to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. If I, if I was going to try to capture the tone of, of this great passage in John chapter 18 in just one word, I think that word would be irony. I found one really good, concise definition of irony uh, from Google's online dictionary. Irony, a state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects and is often amusing as a result. Is often amusing as a result. <laughs> there, are, there are certain points in the biblical narrative when the irony is so thick that we who are on God's side just have to smile. Like when King Saul, after pursuing David relentlessly for years with all of the substantial power at his disposal, learns that while he was in a cave covering his feet, that's a euphemism for taking a bathroom break, David was in the cave with him, just the two of them, and David spared his life. I suspect that God himself smiles at such things. And in fact, I'm pretty sure sometimes he just plain laughs out loud. Psalm 2 speaks of a day when the kings of the earth will take their stand against Yahweh and against His Messiah and they will determine to cast off the fetters, the constraints that God has placed on them so they can live on their own terms. And what will God do? 
The psalm says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He scoffs at them. It's as if God is saying, okay, let me get this straight. You have determined, all you kings of the earth, you've determined that you're going to have your way with me and with my son. If God busts out laughing at such unbridled arrogance, I think we as his people are are at least allowed a hearty chuckle. (laughs) So we're going to have a little fun with this passage. Not because it's trivial, but precisely because it isn't. My title for this morning is How to Arrest the Son of God. There are just three outline points. They're pretty straightforward. The first is bring plenty of soldiers and weapons and torches and lanterns or not. Same difference. Second point is don't wear your best uniform. And finally, know that it won't always be this easy. The first how-to if you plan to arrest the Son of God is to bring plenty of soldiers and weapons. You know, a little shock and awe tends to minimize the resistance. And of course, plenty of lanterns and torches because if you have to smoke a guy out of a crowd in the dark, you have to be able to see him. Or you could not bring any of those things And the outcome would be exactly the same. John's description of the mob that came to arrest Jesus reminds me of a scene from the old black and white Frankenstein movie when the mob of townspeople with lanterns and axes and pitchforks come to do away with Dr. Frankenstein and his monster. Except this mob was much better equipped and better organized A Roman cohort or a battalion of the sort that accompanied Judas to the garden that night consists of roughly 200 to 600 well-trained, well-armed Roman soldiers. And the Jewish authorities from the Jerusalem temple didn't settle just for that. They also sent a detachment of their own temple guard. Also, well-trained, well-armed, professional Soldiers, all to smoke out and to arrest just one man. Now the smoking out part turned uh, turned out to be a piece of cake. As, As Judas and the soldiers and the mob approached the garden, Jesus didn't wait for them to come to where he was standing. John says, Jesus, quote, went forth. That meaning means he went to where the soldiers were. And he said to them, whom do you seek? Debbie and I like to watch a police procedural called Blue Bloods. There are two brothers on the show, Danny and Jamie. Danny's a detective, Jamie's a beat cop. And I have the same gripe with both of them. Can't count the number of times I blurted out to the TV, why don't you guys get a little closer to the perp before you announce yourself? It'd save you a lot of sprinting and jumping over things because they're always going to run. But not Jesus. Jesus did the opposite. And, and that in itself must have been a little unsettling, especially to Judas. The priests at the, at the temple had paid Judas pretty handsomely to betray Jesus into the hands 
of those that they sent to take hold of him and to identify Jesus with a kiss when they came to arrest him. And Judas did all those things. But that was all pretty redundant since the person that they were seeking walked right up to them and asked them whom they were seeking. Both the money and the kiss were wasted. Now, why would Jesus make this so easy? (laughs) Well, he already told us back in chapter 12, just before all the events of this particular night that are recorded in chapters 13 through 18, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the hour to which he was referring was the hour of his death. A couple of verses later, he said, in John 12, he said, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven and said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The theological focal point of this passage that narrates the arrest of Christ is that the entire event was planned, prophesied, and orchestrated by God. It was all God's idea. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Nobody else. About 50 days after Jesus' arrest, Peter stood before a gathering of the same Jewish authorities who had sent this mob that night to lay hold of Jesus. And Peter said to them, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, listen, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross at the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Whose idea was all this? See, when, when you come to arrest the Son of God, you need to, to bring a lot of well-armed soldiers and, and torches and lanterns to light everything up so you can find Him in the crowd or not. doesn't matter. Because the only way you will ever arrest the Son of the living God is if He planned to be arrested. Second, how-to is don't wear your best clothes. Don't wear your your best uniform because it's going to get dirty when you fall down. When Jesus walked right up to these men and said, Whom do you seek? They answered Him, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus replied, 
I am. The next verse tells us, When therefore he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. What made these men step backward and fall on their backs? Well, these weren't the Keystone Cops. If you don't know who that is, Google it. (laughs) Both the Roman garrison and the temple guard were made up of professional soldiers. And by the way, Roman soldiers were used to fighting. And no, they were not lined up single file so close to each other that the first guy stumbled and they all went down like dominoes. Give me a break. These men did not fall on their backs because they were buffoons or because they were clumsy. And they did not fall on their backs because they finally figured out who they were dealing with and they were overcome with humility. Men who have been humbled before God don't fall on their backs. They fall on their faces. The close encounter that that these men had with the dirt that night was not about how impressed they were with Jesus. It was about the power of His name and His word. What was it that made these men fall down? Two words spoken by the Lord of glory. I am. See, this was just a tiny, and I mean tiny, sub-microscopic display of the power of Christ's name and of Christ's spoken word. They didn't fall down out of a righteous response to what Jesus said. They weren't responding at all. They were being acted upon by a power that they didn't comprehend in the least. And when they walked out of that garden that night with Jesus in in bonds, they had no idea what they had just experienced and they had no idea what they had just been spared. What did Jesus mean when He said, I am? Well, seven times in this Gospel, Jesus spoke the words, I am, to declare powerful truths that connected His identity with His mission at His first coming in light of that identity. I call these the missional I am's. They're the ones you've seen and heard many times. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Along with those seven missional I am's are several absolute I am's. Declarations, statements in which Jesus simply proclaims His name. There are three of them in John chapter 8. Verses 24, 28, and 58. Unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And then there's the one that is completely unambiguous. John eight fifty-eight. Before Abraham existed, I am. About 1,500 years earlier, When Moses was shepherding sheep in the wilderness of Sinai, he came upon a flaming bush that was not consumed by its flame. And God spoke to Moses from the midst of that bush and he told Moses, 
that he was appointing Moses to act as his ambassador, to go to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to command Pharaoh to let his people go. So Moses said to God, all right, when the Israelites ask me the name of this God who sent me, what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, which means I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. Turned out that Pharaoh wasn't impressed with God's name. He said to Moses, I don't know this Yahweh that you're talking about. Why should I be concerned with him? So God struck Pharaoh's kingdom with ten catastrophic terrors, the last of which took the life of every firstborn male among both men and animals throughout the kingdom of Egypt, everyone whose house was not covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. Those who were struck dead that night at midnight included Pharaoh's own firstborn son. See, that's that's what happens when you take lightly the proclaimed name of God. What we have here in John 18 is God pulling His punch in a really, really big way. When the Word who was in the beginning with God and who was, is, and always will be God, the One who brought the entire universe into being by the power of His spoken Word, when that One declares of Himself, I am to men who have resolved to have their way with Him, if the breath of physical life remains in those men a split second after Jesus speaks, that's Jesus pulling His punch. The fact that those soldiers came away with nothing but dirty uniforms and Malchus, the high priest's slave, came away with nothing more than a temporarily removed ear was a miracle whose power is reflected in the meagerness of its effect. The only reason any of these men walked out of that garden instead of being carried out was because they were all instruments of God's will and of nobody else's. The third thing that you must bear in mind if you come to arrest the Son of God, is that it won't be this easy next time. In fact, it will never be this easy again. This was a once-in-history outcome. Before this, no man who tried to put his hands on Jesus, and there were quite a few of them, even managed to touch Him. And after this, well, (laughs) listen as I read all of Psalm 2. It's not a long psalm. 
This great psalm celebrating the coronation of God's Messiah will tell you all you need to know about how things play out when men resolve to have their way with the King of Kings. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Guys, if that doesn't sound familiar to you in this day and age, you're not paying attention. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against His Messiah. That's what it says. And they say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And the next verse says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and He will terrify them in His fury. Saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then the psalmist switches to the perspective of that king. (laughs) I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. doesn't mean the son was born on that day. This is a coronation psalm. It's declaring His kingship. Ask, the Father then says to the Son, Ask of Me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like cheap pottery. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Literally kiss the Son. That He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That very last declaration in the last verse, how blessed are all who take refuge in Him, is about the fear that attracts. See, we who belong to Jesus purely by His grace take refuge in Him. And we find perfect blessedness in Him not because He is not fearsome to us, but because He alone is fearsome to us. He has made us who deserve only His eternal wrath the objects of His eternal love. So we fiercely cling to Him. Those who turn away from Him and shake their fist at Him now, refusing to bow down to the great I Am, will, if they persist in that rebellion, one day still be made to bow down to Him. But if they do not do so willingly while breath remains in them, they will do so by force on the day that they sit at the foot of His throne to be eternally judged. And that will be the last that they ever see of the living God forever. 
The book of Revelation tells us that Jesus is going to return to this earth with with the armies of heaven. He will be clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name will be called the Word of God. With one weapon, one weapon, the sharp sword that comes out of his mouth, the sword which is his spoken word, he will smite the nations and he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. With nothing but His spoken word, He will fill the valley of Megiddo with the blood of rebellious men up to the bridles of their own horses for a distance of 200 miles. The same all-powerful word who spoke everything into existence will execute his fierce judgment against every creature who has persisted in taking a stand against Yahweh and against his Messiah. And they will all fall down. Not one of the things that occurred on the momentous night that Jesus was arrested just happened. Things don't just happen to the Son of God. He didn't come to save us from some glitch that snuck into His created order. (laughs) And He wasn't a victim. He came to save us from Himself. As He declared in John chapter 5, all judgment has been given into His hand. He alone is the righteous judge of all mankind and of all creation. The judgment that you and I all deserve and that we equally deserve cannot be avoided. That judgment will either fall upon you or it will fall upon Him. There may very well be some of you here this morning who fall catastrophically outside of the promise of eternal well-being that is found only in Jesus There may be some here who, without even realizing it until this day, have been standing with Judas and with all of the betrayers and deniers of Jesus. In case you don't realize it, that is the default position of all of humanity. That's how we all start out. See, we don't want a king who has to die for us because of the wretchedness of our rebellious hearts. We don't even want to admit that we have rebellious hearts. We want a king who will finally give us what we deserve. Who will end every unjust act against us. Who will give us the prosperity and well-being and significance that every human being has the right to enjoy. Right? No. Catastrophically wrong. Fatally, catastrophically wrong. Today, my friend, may you hear the most powerful, life-giving, recreating words that you will ever hear. I am. There are only two responses to the power of those words. Some are cast away from Christ onto their backs in unwilling submission. 
On the last day, Revelation chapter 6 says that those will cry out to the mountains and to the rocks saying, fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Even when they know who He is, they will not repent. They will not flee to Him for His mercy. They'll say, hide us from Him. Others who hear those same two words, I am, are cast irresistibly forward onto their faces by the fear that attracts. Forward to the feet of Jesus in grateful, joyful, humble trust and dependence on the Christ, the Son of the living God, the only one able and worthy to satisfy God's righteous wrath against you and me and to bring us into perfect union with Himself forever. Jesus came from heaven to earth, beloved, to save us from Himself, for Himself, by giving Himself up in our place. He came to die for desperate sinners like you and me because there was no other way. You don't have to like that, but you must believe it. God commands you to believe it and there is life in no one else. There's one more thing that we must not miss in this powerful passage. It has to do with an important connection between this passage and the prayer in the previous passage. And it has to do with the protection that God actually promises to us as His children. In verse 1 of this chapter, John is careful to point out that the events that occurred in chapter 18 happened immediately after Jesus prayed the incomparable prayer in chapter 17. A prayer that Jesus made sure His disciples heard. Having lifted up that prayer to His Father, Jesus now went forth, verse 1 of chapter 18, went forth with His disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, into which He Himself entered and His disciples. Notice the deliberate redundancy. Jesus went forth into the garden with His disciples and then at the end of the verse, He entered Himself and His disciples. John adds a very illuminating bit of information in the next verse. He says, Now Judas also, who was betraying Jesus, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with His disciples. John wants us to know that Jesus was very intentionally escorting His disciples into a situation that He knew was going to be exceedingly threatening as men measure threat. John tells us in verse 4, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. But Jesus had just asked His Father in chapter 17 to to keep, to keep watch over His beloved disciples just as He, Jesus, had been keeping them 
while he was with them. In verse 12 of chapter 17, he said, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, the name which you have given me, and I, I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that's Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So if Jesus was so intent on keeping watch over, on guarding his disciples, why did he take them into the Garden of Gethsemane when he knew that a large mob of resolute, well-armed soldiers and angry townspeople was just minutes away heading straight for that very garden. If Jesus had to go to that garden and be arrested to fulfill his Father's will, why not send his disciples away to someplace safe? I'm convinced that a very important part of the answer to that question is this. Brothers and sisters, real security in this life has absolutely nothing to do with being taken out of the way of earthly threats or heavenly threats. And by heavenly threats, I mean demonic ones. Far too many Christians are exempting themselves from joyful usefulness to God because their definition of security is wrong. You and I need to know what it is that God calls security, and we need to call that security. When Jesus asked his father to keep a protective watch over these men, was he asking him to keep them out of the way of serious threats? Well, if he was, he contradicted his own prayer in chapter 18. But that's not what was going on here. See, in chapter 15, Jesus told these same 11 men that the world would hate them because it hated him. The world wouldn't hate them from a distance The world would persecute them just as it had persecuted him. And then he told them in in chapter 16 at the beginning, those same persecutors would make them outcasts from the synagogue, but it it would get a whole lot worse than that. He said, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. If you put those statements of Jesus together with many, many others like them in the Gospels, you're going to have a really hard time defending the popular notion that God is supposed to keep His children out of the way of the harm that this world earnestly wants to do to us. He never promised that. So what good is God's protection? What is He actually protecting us from? Here's where we get the tie-in with that prayer that came just before this. That amazing, incomparable prayer Jesus prayed just before He took His disciples into the garden that night is all about our perfect union with Him. The union that binds us to the living God together with every other believer forever. John 17.3 tells us that that's life. This is eternal life that they may know, intimately, personally know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you 
have sent. That relationship is the very definition and essence of real life. That is the sum total of everything that constitutes real blessedness now and forever. And beloved, that, that is what God promises to secure for us now and always. We need to stop holding God to promises that He never made and never would make because they would be powerless, pointless, valueless promises that that would cripple us and make us useless. He loves us too much to do anything of the sort. We need to start clinging with all of our might to the glorious promises that He has made to us in and through our union with Jesus Christ. God never promised to keep us out of the battle between light and darkness, good and evil, Christ and Satan that is raging every day on this godless earth. He promised the opposite. See, He has called us into that battle every single day of our lives until He takes us into His own eternal home. That's why we're still here. Romans chapter 8, I go there often, but that chapter lists the kinds of threats that we, you and I, are going to encounter in that battle. Not threats that God promises to keep away from us, but threats that He promises to bring us into in order that we will advance His heavenly kingdom on this earth. Listen to this list. Tell me if it misses anything. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, death, life, angels, demons, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, and to cap it off, any other created thing. Seems to me that pretty much covers it. And you know what Paul says none of those things will ever be able to do to us who belong to Christ? None of those things will ever have the power to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Instead of being overcome by those things, (laughs) Paul says to you and me, In all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Do you believe that? Beloved, that's the life to which God has called us. It's a joyful, purposeful, powerful, peaceful, amazing life. And it consists entirely of our union with Jesus Christ that nobody and nothing can take away from us. Why did Jesus take these men with Him to be confronted by hundreds of armed soldiers and riled up townspeople? (laughs) I believe it's because He wanted them to know what God's protection was not going to look like. And He wanted them to know what it was going to look like. 
It was not going to be life on the sidelines. It was going to be life on the front lines. God would preserve them through many earthly threats just as He did that night, but He would not take them out of the fight. Many of them would be arrested just as He was. Many of them would be killed just as He was. The slave is not greater than the master. But they would overwhelmingly conquer over every threat that would ever be raised up against them because of the one thing that can never be taken away from them. And that's true of every single one of you who belongs to Jesus Christ. It is always true. His unfailing love for us is all the security we will ever need. There is no other imitation of security that will ever come close. You who belong to Jesus know this. He has called you into the battle and He is all that you need. When all of your senses tell you that your situation has gone off the rails, that you are at the mercy of people and things that threaten to undo you, know this. There is nothing on earth or in heaven, not one created thing that is worthy of your fear, but Him alone. And that works out exceedingly well because He's the one calling all the shots. If He is for us, (laughs) who can be against us? So be in the battle, confident and joyful. In Christ, Father, dear Father, cast us not upon our backs away from Christ, but upon our faces in blessed and joyful trust and submission to our Savior and Master, the great I Am. It's in His beautiful name that we pray. Amen.